0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.
1: I do have one memory of Guatemala from when I was younger. But I'm never certain whether it's a memory or a dream that I confuse with a memory or a recollection of some other time and place that I wrongly slipped into the first three years of my life. The more I think of it, the more tenuous it becomes. I am sitting in the dirt. Hot air undulates over the road ahead of me, and through it, in the distance, a pale figure moves toward me. Walking brings me no closer to it, and I sit down again in the dirt road, the dahlias and zinnias hanging over the low wooden fence to my right. As I watch, the luminous shape grows larger until it splits in two, a man and a woman walking toward me, their heads together, their faces a blur, their bodies rippling uncertainly in the heat so that they seem on the verge of coming apart and vanishing. The blue sky presses down on them and the road trembles and unravels and briefly redraws itself. The only sound, a constant buzzing that rises and falls as if riding the heat waves, comes from the heavy flowers that lie just out of reach. Before the figures can reach me, a door slams, and a moment later a woman says my name. Her voice brings me to myself, and I look down, only to find my arms and legs disappearing in the heat, splintering into a hundred pieces of blackness. The woman pulls me up and roughly brushes my arms and legs with her hands. The ants begin to fall away, clinging to her fingers and then tumbling to the ground so that they form a quivering carpet. I stand mesmerized, immobile, watching the ants that still crawl furiously over my skin.
0: Sylvia Sellers Garcia was born in Boston and grew up in the United States and in Central America. She's currently a Ph.D. candidate in Latin American history at UC Berkeley. Her first novel is "When the Ground Turns in Its Sleep." Thank you for speaking with me, Sylvia. Thank you very much. This is a very interesting novel about identity.
1: Mm. Yes, it could be seen that way.
0: <laughs> what what I what struck me at the very from the very beginning, it was that your main character, Nitito, takes on a a brand new identity without even almost realizing it. Could you talk about that?
1: Yes. Um, He takes on the identity of a priest in this town that he's visiting, and he takes it on, as you say, effortlessly, almost by accident. Um, But I hope readers will wonder how much of it is really an accident, how much of it is really... The way that people assume the identities that others impose upon them. Uh, I think that it's also about identity in the cultural sense, where he may think he has a well-formed identity in the United States, and then he has to redraw it uh, in this other country, in Guatemala. So perhaps the occupation that he adopts has something to do with that slippage of where the identity boundaries lie.
0: And, and that occupation is?
1: Uh, the occupation he takes on yes. of the priest? Yeah. Well, I think that... Um, the the priesthood brings with it all these responsibilities that he hasn't perhaps thought about before, and uh, I think for him it has to do with being a father in the literal and um, figurative sense. This is where his he begins to think about what it means to be a, a fatherly figure for a community or for for anyone.
0: This is also a story with lots of stories within stories and lots of voices. Chorusing and telling different stories and not telling stories as well. It's it's an interesting novel in that a lot of it is about what's not said.
1: Yes. Well, I think that, in my experience, silence is a huge part of contemporary life in Guatemala. And that is not just because of the armed conflict. It's also uh, part of the language, part of the local language. And I really wanted to try to capture that in this novel to demonstrate how people, um, as you say, don't speak and how that communicates a lot um, on its own terms.
0: Now, this novel, the main character in this novel, and you have many similarities, I, I, <laughs> and I wonder if you care to talk about, just uh, tell us a little bit of your history uh-huh. and maybe compare and contrast that with the history of your character.
1: Sure. Well, we have a different gender. That's yeah. one thing. <laughs> <Obviously>. <laughs> Um, I am, my mother is Guatemalan, my father is American, and they met in Guatemala. Uh, my father was took time off from college and went to Guatemala, and he was actually um, working with the Episcopal Church uh, in Guatemala, not as a, a priest, but um, as an assistant in the church. And he met my mother some years afterwards, and then they returned to the United States. I was born there, but when I was only a few months old, we went to live in Costa Rica. Um, and then We went to the United States when I was only a few years old. I spent most of my life in the U.S., but definitely returned frequently to to Guatemala, where all my mother's family remained. So, we have the similarity that we are, in some way, from another country in terms of our background, but we are different in the sense that I think he, Nitido, the narrator, has had a real silence imposed on his past whereas I grew up hearing so much about Guatemala and being constantly drawn to it by things that both my parents would tell me about it, and I returned uh, in a way that he wasn't able to, this character, until he was older.
0: Could you talk a little bit about your uncle, Uncle Mario? Yes. He's a a really interesting figure, and I think that he'll help me at least understand mm-hmm. some of the the history that that you bring with you and that the novel speaks to.
1: Yes, of course. Uh, my my mother's eldest brother Mario Silva Honama was part of the Arbenz government. Jacobo Arbenz was the president of Guatemala and was uh, ousted in 1954 by the by a coup led by the CIA. And after that coup, Mario went into exile in Mexico. And when he returned, he was organizing with other people in Guatemala against the repressive military regime, and he was killed in 1972, Um, and the circumstances of his death are only known to the family indirectly. Of course, we don't have the hard facts of what happened to him. It's one of those cases where you have to partly invent it in your head. And I think that growing up, my, my mother always spoke to me about him, and with such reverence that I couldn't help but be drawn to him as an inspiration, a, a figure of the possibility that Guatemala had before it and that in at least one version of the story was cut short. So I always had that in my mind as, a, as an attraction to the history of the place, and I'm sure it's part of what drew me to studying Guatemala more formally.
0: You just used a phrase that I thought was interesting, only part of the story.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, I try to be, I try to be balanced in that way because I do think that one of the things I learned uh, in spending more time in Guatemala is that people's versions of what occurred are very different. And you might speak with people in the city, in the Guatemala City, who might even try to argue with you that the armed conflict never took place. I'm not saying that they're right, but there are people who. Um, have lived in a way that allows them to believe that. So spending time there, I've grown really interested in the versions that people make for themselves about what what has happened in the last half century. And clearly this novel tries to work that in, the idea that you can be truthful and at the same time differ very very greatly with other versions of what has happened in the past.
0: And and that brings in the theme of of memory in this novel and in your life as well. Mm Because we alter our memories.
1: I think so. I think that it's inevitable that we edit. We think about the past in ways that are most coherent and useful and pleasurable to us. Um, and that leads to necessary retelling in our own minds. And in this novel, what I see happening is that people have a lot of other impulses that cause this, that it, that input That create this process of editing and make the version um, more fluid so that when people speak they've had to really polish the story that finally comes out.
0: (laughs) Uh, I've been uh, acquainted with that that (laughs) phenomenon. I'm sure. (laughs) One of the aspects of the story one of the more powerful parts of it is the alternating the the letters to his father Mm -hmm. and and his father is dying of alzheimer's yes and and this is a disease that alters the memory and impairs our ability to both understand and and, uh, retell stories
1: yeah that's kind of the essential kernel about memory in this book but i wanted it to complement the other treatments of memory in the novel. I think that Nitido's father has a initially problematic relationship with the memories that are slipping away, but in the journals that Nitido discovers written by his father, I think you can see him um, wrestling with the loss of memory and then maybe even uh, reaching a peace with that loss in a way that perhaps is not Common
0: i I wanted to talk to you just about your history mm-hmm. a, a, as a writer. Mm-hmm. when you grew up in in a world it sounds like that was rich in documentation and stories and mm-hmm. conflicting documentation, conflicting stories. did this like lead you to be interested in writing down your own stories at <laughs> an early age or
1: yeah that 's an interesting way of putting it. I think that documentation was perhaps not as great a part of it. I was definitely reading, and that mm-hmm. reading was a lo- big part of our family life. Both my parents were academics. But documenting the past, maybe not as much. A lot of what I heard about the past was was oral. Mm-hmm. was actually heard, was, was told by my mother or, or told by my father, experiences that were passed on in that way. Um, and I think that the impulse to write was really about <laughs> Going back to your initial point about identity, you know, really about trying to pin down uh, those, that gray area, that internal gray area that you try to map out in some way. And for some people, it works best with writing.
0: And, and you describe yourself as transnational, which is an interesting term. Mm-hmm. You, what does that mean exactly?
1: Well, to me, it means that you don't necessarily identify with one nation that you think of yourself as belonging to or representing more than one national place. And that perhaps, uh, not to sound grand about it, but that we can think beyond national boundaries when we think about identity, that people need not necessarily belong to one country or another country, but that they can be from several.
0: Uh, When did you start writing? I mean, when did you actually start, I mean, did you write stories as a kid, or as a teenager, or, or...?
1: Yes I did. I started writing we have some family jokes about my early writing attempts, which I'm sure as for most people were not very good and then they uh, became a little more serious and earnest in high school. I had wonderful um, teachers in middle school and high school who encouraged me to to write and really taught me how to how to learn how to how to think about um, creativity and language in a way that really inspired me. So I was fortunate to have those uh, early mentors. And I started writing poetry in high school and I made some attempts to write fiction when I was in college. And similar to Nitido, they were uh, also about Guatemala in indirect ways. Uh, But I was also trying to uh, write about myself, as I think often happens when people are trying to get a grasp on their own voice. So fiction, I think, for me began when I was more um, in my early 20s. And,
0: and you've been published in some prestigious uh, short stories, your j- journals.
1: Uh, story Quarterly. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, that's a wonderful journal. And uh, I, was, I felt very very fortunate when that story was published um, and, and to be part of those great collections that they have annually, yeah.
0: Now, could you talk about your experience as an intern? at Harper's and the New Yorker that that also is a very big deal especially right. for anybody who wants to write or be published. Right well
1: that's exactly why I wanted to work in those places I had the idea that I would learn about <laughs> what people look for and I, I certainly did I think that at Harper's I was an intern there for five months and I learned a huge amount about how decisions are made and how people um, look at pieces before they're even fully created um, and also I think I really learned much more, not so much about how to write, but um, what kinds of things are considered uh, writerly. You know, what what other types of materials I'd never even considered, like the reading section in Harper's, which is fantastic, and I hadn't even thought about writing for myself, but it was exposure to this whole new form that really um, opened my eyes. And then at the New Yorker, I was a fact-checker, so it was quite different.
0: Oh, that's the... uh, trying to remember Bright Light's J. McInery job. That's right, <laughs> yes. yeah,
1: yeah. So it's it's really striking to me now being in a, a research program. You know, the PhD is a, a research, a six-year research program, ostensibly. And the contrast with fact-checking is, is so tremendous. I, I felt like I was supposed to be doing the same thing, but they're so different. Fact-checking really is about, uh, in a strange way, being part of the writing process. You're, it's not really just about getting the date right or anything like that. It really is about the integrity of the piece as a whole. And I've found that in contrast, academic writing is, um, is, is so much more, um, I guess, explosive in its possibilities. Like I'm, You're really encouraged to push beyond what might be correct for a particular piece of writing in order to discover other possibilities. So, in researching academically, you almost have to go beyond what might be correct. I think in order to find something really, um, really worthwhile.
0: Now, as you're in your PhD, mm-hmm. you're doing engaged in this research. What made you decide to start writing a novel?
1: Um, oh, I actually started this, the idea for this novel, before starting graduate school, and uh, that was in. I guess the summer of 2003. I started writing down some some short scenes and pieces that might fit into a novel around these ideas. And then I started graduate school and I kind of got plunged into that whole way of thinking, um, working in seminars, reading several books a week. And at the end of my first semester, I took a look at what I'd written um, all during that semester and it was terrible. <laughs> it was just a disaster of little pieces that I'd strung together. It made no sense. It was it was too experimental. I think I'd been almost too pushed too far by the academic work I was doing into um creating an abstract piece. So I had to start all over. And that was the moment when I was really able to see the the necessary distance between the two endeavors. You know that I really needed to pursue academic work in one direction and the fiction in another, and that they could reinforce each other and complement each other, but it's not the same kind of writing.
0: <laughs> uh, you you talked about writing some scenes about some ideas. What what were those ideas? That, what was mm-hmm. in your head mm. before you even started writing this novel?
1: What was in my head was the the impact that had been left with me from the oral histories I worked with in 1999. Um, I was doing a, an MA in Latin American Studies, and I did research in Guatemala over a few months, and I spoke with many individuals who had been witnesses or indirectly affected by the armed conflict. And I wrote a thesis about it in which I, I think I tried to do justice to these stories. And then the years passed, and I felt like I still hadn't, done what I needed to do with all the things I'd heard during that time. It's not so much the particular content of those stories so much as the the urgency of them, the tone of um, of being a witness, the idea of having seen things that I felt the compulsion to pass along.
0: What, what stories did you hear?
1: Well, some of them have found their way into this novel. Um, I spoke with a a priest who had who had actually left the church when I spoke to him, but he'd been a priest in Guatemala for many years. He'd worked in a rural town um, and people started confessing illnesses to him and he didn't know what that meant. And for months he wrestled with this strange practice that he couldn't make heads or tails of. And he finally decided that in his mind, illness was a manifestation of sin because people never spoke about what he knew had happened in the town. He knew from other, um, from other people, horrible things that occurred. But no one ever spoke about that. People spoke about these illnesses. And he also told me about how people would come to him and give him long lists of names of the dead, names of their, of their close relatives who had died. And he just didn't know what to do with these numbers, these huge lists. And when he would read them in the services, he felt uh, overwhelmed by the sheer amount of loss. And I also spoke with a, a doctor who had seen many things during the armed conflict and had dealt with them. And what I found a very moving and at once disturbing way, he, ha- he had this tone of dark humor he laughed at everything. Every, the, the most horrible story that he would tell me, he would find hilarious. He would tell it to me as a joke. The punchline was the, the gruesome part. And he had come to reshape his whole experience in the armed conflict through this lens. Um, and I found that really, really moving, um, really heartbreaking, too. Uh, and other people, other people who had, I spoke with one young man who's now an activist and an author in Guatemala who had, he was 10 or 11, I think, and he had witnessed the massacre of his whole town. Um, And he was actually then taken away by one of the assassins to live in that person's hometown. He lived his whole adolescence in the shadow of this, this man and had then escaped and lived to talk about it. So the The stories that I heard, both in their particulars and in the personalities that were behind them, really stayed with me. And I felt as though I needed to um, write about them in a way that would reach more readers.
0: So you've got some disconnected little pieces. Mm -hmm. You're in grad school. Yeah. (laughs) And you start connecting the pieces. Could you talk a little bit about your process of writing the fiction and, and making sure even though you're writing fiction you want to make sure it reflects some kind of truth but exactly. you can't even grab the truth right
1: right well one thing I tried to do both in those little pieces and in this novel is that I tried to make the violence that I described true in the sense that it was an event narrated to me it was really important to me to not use violence in a way that was uh, for its own sake and and that was a way that I th- that I thought I could be honest about things that had happened, um, and yet go deeper into their context by you know, providing a story around them. Um, but in terms of the the little pieces, uh, they were really just sort of scenes that, as I said, were, they, they fit together intellectually in a really interesting way, but it was more like a puzzle than a story. <laughs> and uh, I think the way that I started to make sense of them together was that I I realized I needed an anchor in the form of this narrator. Someone who could explain what I felt to be the, the process of deep alienation that occurs when you are confronted by these stories. I knew that the reader would feel them just as I had felt them in listening to them. It's a tremendous shock to hear these things told to you. and At, the first, at first you can't respond other than emotionally. You, know, you just have this um, horror in listening to, to what's being said or, or written. And then I think you somehow have to cope with it. So I felt as though for a written piece there needed to be a, a narrative anchor in the form of this person who would uh, travel in my stead to... Guatemala and be confronted with all these pieces you know all these incoherent pieces that would somehow need to fit together in his own mind Uh, and I hope that the process of the alienating process he goes through and putting together this story for himself isn't too frustrating for the reader but it can actually have some of the satisfactions it has for him the narrator in in understanding something uh, deeper behind those those individual segments
0: Could you talk about your emotional state as you were writing this novel? It can't have been something that would be easy to do.
1: Yeah, I think the more difficult part even was when I was doing the research for the the oral history project because I was, as I said, listening to what people would, would say to me and also reading a lot about it, reading other books, that were either transcriptions of oral histories or, or treatments of them. And just reading the some of the formal reports created around this armed conflict, the UN uh, Commission report or the Guatemalan Catholic Church's report, they have a lot of first-person testimonies that are just heartbreaking. I, mean, I have these memories of reading in the library and <laughs> weeping over them. You know, people around me would be working and I would just be, dissolving over this this book that was lying in front of me and I think with time as I said you have to learn to make some sense of of that material it's it's really tempting I think to not think about it anymore to have that initial reaction and then just say wow you know what can I do that's that's really horrible and I kept returning to it because there was something I felt worthwhile beyond that initial shocked reaction. So in writing, uh, I think the thing that was motivating me, and it was difficult as you say, but I really wanted to communicate that experience of really real horror to the reader, but in a way that was humane, in a way that wouldn't be meaningless, in a way that would allow the reader to uh, discern for herself some some other purpose behind it. Uh, And I think some some days are obviously more difficult than others. I think the more frustrating thing emotionally in writing is when you look back at a piece of writing that you've imagined has done just what you wanted it to and and you realize it's just not up to your aims at all. It falls so short and it doesn't doesn't express that combination of, um, you know, humanity and, and uh, at the same time, truth that you wanted it to. And everything is always <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to achieve that, that high standard you set for yourself each day. So I think that was the, the difficulty emotionally, <laughs> that whole long process.
0: Well, at, at some point, you came to a, a point when you thought you'd finished the novel. I mean, mm-hmm. it, did you have people reading it as as you went along? Did you have readers, or did you just uh, burrow away in Midnight Candle by yourself?
1: I did. I did wait until I had a somewhat uh, workable version, and then I showed it to um, a couple of friends and my family. And uh, I'm fortunate that my my parents always have the approach that no matter what it is, it's it's wonderful. <laughs> so both my parents read it and um, they gave me a lot, of, a lot of support for the version that, that I'd given them. I, looking back, I can't imagine how they did. Um, and then um, other people that I'd given to gave me some comments about how to, how to sort of reshape it and, um, and think about making things more accessible to the reader. I think that's been my struggle in all the different versions that I've worked with, both uh, comments that I received from friends early on and then uh, more formal revisions I made later. My struggle has always been that I love as a reader um, piecing things together for myself. That puzzle that I was talking about, that's where, the, that's where it came out most. And I, I really struggle with creating something for readers that has that uh, challenge to it, but that isn't off-putting. I, I think that's that's my biggest um, difficulty
0: well when you thought you had a finished book mm-hmm. what how did you get around to to like selling it to anybody or getting anybody beyond your friends to read it
1: oh <laughs> well i was fortunate in that that story you mentioned the the one in in story quarterly um, i was contacted by an agent after that story came out um, and uh, dorian um, had been in touch with me from that time and i sent her this manuscript when it looked more or less workable to me and uh, she gave me some very very encouraging and very honest comments in response to it and we worked together for quite a while several months on creating a different um, a different version that's where the the whole issue with accessibility came up once again so that i was i think i was really fortunate in that i um i had I had someone I could send it to at that point.
0: Well, you and Dorian have completed (laughs) your your manuscript. What what did she and you do next?
1: Um, Well, we worked on it. Let's see if I can work on the timing. It was, I started writing it in 2003, and then um, I started working with Dorian on it in 2004, and I guess it was, right, it was in January of 2006, that we finally decided it was presentable, um, and Dorian um, said, all right, this is it. We're going to try to show it to editors, and she showed it to several people and uh, I guess it was, yeah, January of 2006, and I had this wonderful conversation with uh, Megan Lynch at Riverhead Books. She um, called and spoke with me, and uh, I really loved her take on the book, um, she asked me, I remember, who my favorite authors were, and it really caught me off guard.
0: <laughs> well, I, uh, what did you tell her?
1: <laughs> I don't remember what I said to her, but ever since then, I've been sort of revising the list in my head, being like, I, I need to know next time.
0: <laughs> oh, what's, the, what's, what's tonight's list? Uh,
1: all right, tonight's list, um, Raymond Chandler, Edith Wharton, Ursula Le Guin, um
0: boy, I can see all of those put into the mix master. Really? really? <laughs> yes, yeah, I know it makes perfect sense. Oh
1: well, good. <laughs> yeah, I um I don't know. It's really hard to say one one favorite, but but yeah, I had, so I had a very good conversation with her and and that was the the next stage, stage of the of the process.
0: Well, tell us what what happens after that. I mean, mm-hmm. did did they just say, "Okay, this manuscript is good. We're we're going to go start out diddling <laughs> it right now
1: no of course not um we we then went through sort of a couple stages i remember of of biggish revisions uh and again i think the main issue was really uh making the story more accessible to in, in certain places not not so much of a um not so many unknowns. I think that was the issue with the early drafts, that there were too many unknowns up front. So we started working, I think, when I finished that, that semester, because I was really um, deep into my exams at that point.
0: Oh, that's, remind, that's right. You're, you're in grad school. <laughs> that's you're, right. You're, you're getting a PhD at this point. Right. This is, this is a, like a, a, a part-time job. Yeah, it was,
1: the, it was the semester, January 2006, that was the semester I started studying for my oral exams and the PhD program. And that I don't know. Maybe it's different in other programs, but that was, it was really tough at Berkeley. So I had to study really hard that semester. We sort of put the, the book thing on hold, which was very kind of them to adjust to that. And I just, I just worked on my exams for that whole term.
0: Well, now, if you're doing your oral exams and you're writing a book about oral histories, it seems like there's going to be some feedback <laughs> between those two, was there?
1: Well, they're fortunately very different processes. <laughs> the... Um, The oral exam is, it's really an exercise, now that I'm over and I've passed, I can say that it's, I I realize that it's mostly just about um, preparing yourself to feel confident in your own skin, talking with authority on these subjects that you're supposed to be an expert on. The truth is, as I believe, that no one's ever going to be an absolute expert on any of these issues. There's too much to read, there's too much we don't know, uh, and I could spend my whole life reading history books about Latin America and never never finish. So the idea of the oral exam, I think, from my point of view, um, is to get you to a point where you feel comfortable speaking on your subject and you have a foundation from which to work when you go out into the field and you start doing your research. So it's very performative. The oral exam is not confessional in the way that an oral history is. It's much more about uh, speaking, speaking in a way that, persuades your professors that you understand the material and that you've um, created that that basic groundwork for yourself
0: well when you had gone through all your big revisions with the, your editor mm-hmm. um, what what happens next
1: what happens next well you know one of the one of the things that's interesting to me about this process I'm realizing as you ask me through the steps is that I don't know how much this has to do with it, but I, I don't, never went to an MFA program. And I have this, maybe it's not accurate, but I have this sense that maybe if I'd done that, someone would have given me this this calendar of how things were supposed to occur. As it was, I was really sort of, the ne- each ne- next big step was, was kind of a revelation to me, each new thing that happened. Um, and I really didn't know what to expect after the editing of the book was done. But then we started thinking about the Uh, Sort of pre-promotional things that relate to the book, and and a lot of these were things that had never occurred to me. You know, trying to have um, other publications out at the same time. You know, short pieces in in different places, and uh, contacting people for blurbs, um, writing letters to to authors who might be willing to say something nice about your book, Um, and 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 then thinking this part I didn't do, but thinking about. uh, who to contact for reviews and and the, their whole side of that is is huge, um, and all of it was unknown to me. So it was a real learning experience for me to see how much goes into the process of creating creating this book. What, another thing that happens at this stage that I really enjoyed and I feel really grateful to to Megan Lynch and Riverhead for is the the design of the cover. The, oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, and it was interesting the way this happened because. They asked me initially for some photographs of Guatemala and I was like, you know, I I'm not a tourist there anymore. I never take photographs. I don't I don't even know if I have any. So I sent them some that a friend had taken and and they said, Well, yeah, but do you have any anything that might sort of work as inspiration for for the designer? And I mentioned this Guatemalan photographer, uh, Luis González Palma, whom I've loved for years. I I just I think his work is wonderful. And I was astonished that they suggested using one of his photographs for the cover, I was just thrilled. And um, I, I love his work so much. So I'm very, very pleased. Every time I see it, I'm like, oh, you know, the cover is the best part of this book. <laughs> uh, and then the other thing they did is that they talked about working with the, the handwriting for the title. And uh, they asked me for a sample of, of my handwriting, which I thought was really, really thoughtful. And they actually ended up modeling the handwriting for the title on the the handwriting of my mother's mother my Guatemalan grandmother um who had a very formal but shaky hand and I think it the artist did a really nice job sort of adapting that that style for the title so I really feel in looking at this like it's very it's a very personal connection that I have to the, to the way the book looks and I love that about it
0: and, and this is a very personal book too
1: yeah yeah so it's very um it means a lot to me that that um that that's that's what I see when I look at it it's it's all it's all one piece that there's a there's connections to it inside and out
0: are you working on another novel now
1: well I started but grad school will interfere <laughs> I, I started working on something last year um, and now I'm actually working on my dissertation and last semester I, I was a graduate student instructor at Berkeley for the first time it's my first semester teaching and the good news is that I loved it. I really enjoyed teaching. I had a great time, but it was so time consuming. So I really didn't have time to do uh, much else, really. And I have to write that dissertation at some point, you know. <laughs> so that's what I'm working on now. My hope is that in the next year and a half, I will be able to sort of balance my time between the, the fiction writing and the dissertation writing, because they're, they're very different. They um, they occupy different spaces in my head, and they don't, um, they can be done at the same time without really uh, interfering with each other,
0: you can't write. You can't write the two at the same time. No, I can. Oh. Yeah,
1: I, I actually think they they help. They kind of they each create a break from the other in a weird way. Um, the the work on the history work really um, it's just a different type of of intellectual approach that that each requires, and I find that it it really refreshes my mind almost to to work on the on the two side by side because they require such different. Um, approaches.
0: We've been speaking with Sylvia Sellers-Garcia. Her first novel is When the Ground Turns in Its Sleep. Thank you for joining me, Sylvia.
1: Thank you so much, Rick.